Welcome to the Feel Good Running Podcast, where our goal is to keep you motivated, inspired, and energized. As a runner, or perhaps you are looking for the right motivation to become one, you've definitely found the right place. We share inspirational stories from real runners, motivating running-related information, and much more to help you feel good about your running. And now your host and a longtime feel-good runner himself, Jim Lynch. Hello, runners, and hope you're all doing very well. My name is Jim Lynch. This is my podcast, Feel Good Running. Welcome to it. Glad you're here. I really am. Now, um, if you're new, thank you for listening. If you're a regular listener, thank you. And this is going to be a little bit different today because I'm taking a little bit of a break, but I'm not taking it for myself. I'm taking it because... I'm doing some different things with the podcast. So that intro that you just heard, and you've heard for 34 episodes now, going away. I'm having a new one produced. And same with the uh, the music bed. I think they call it a music bed. And then the, uh, the outro. It's all going to be different. And I'm also uh, putting together two incredibly amazing episodes and it's taking some time. I even have an editor for one of them. It's going to be the best episode that I've put out and I hope you're going to enjoy it. I'm not going to tell you about it right now, but I'm just going to tell you it's going to be a really good episode. So um, thank you uh, for bearing with me this episode. I am going to replay one of my favorite interviews and it's with Peter Sagal from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Now, that show is on NPR, National Public Radio. It's the weekly news quiz that he hosts, and it's extremely popular. And he's also the author of the book, The Incomplete Book of Running. And um, when you hear the interview, if you haven't, if you heard it already, then you're not going to want to listen to the rest of this. But if you haven't heard it, which you've, you would have had to have gone through a lot of my old episodes to find it, um, during the episode, I mentioned that we need to get him out for the Maui Marathon. This was when I was living in Maui and the co-race director of the Maui Marathon. And by the way, do you, uh, do you remember what a marathon is or was? It's been so long. This pandemic has really, really messed up the running world, I guess. But, uh, think about that. Go back, Google it. Marathon, 26.2 miles. Well, we did have him come out, and it was a wonderful experience. He spoke at two sessions of our expo that we had at the Westin in Kanapali, and we purchased uh, a couple boxes of books for him to sign after he spoke uh, a meet and greet. And then um, the Girls on the Run Maui chapter, they reaped all the proceeds from the books that were sold. And we sold them all. And Peter was phenomenal. His talks were great. Uh, we had people in there that uh, really enjoyed listening to him. And then, um, and then he signed books and he stayed there. And even if somebody brought in their own book or just wanted an autograph from Peter or meet him, he stayed there and spent time with each and every person. You talked to them, took pictures with them, signed autographs. This is amazing. And then the next day, he ran the marathon, did the full marathon, and uh, it was pretty pretty hot and humid. And I saw him when he came across the finish line. He said, that was tough. Well, it is a tough marathon, you know, because of the heat. But uh, he thoroughly enjoyed it. He brought his lovely wife out, and they were able to spend a uh, wonderful week on Maui, Stayed a little bit in Kanapali and then uh, went over to Hana and enjoyed that for, for a few days. So it was all around wonderful for, for the marathon, for the runners, and for Peter and his wife. He's a perfect gentleman. Now, if you listen to NPR, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is the weekly news quiz that he is the host of. And it's very popular. It's the most popular program on national public radio. And it's always on Saturday. I think uh, here in Denver, I noticed that it's uh, on Saturday and then they repeat it on Sunday. It's on Saturday in Maui. So anyways, it's a really great interview. The book is uh, phenomenal. And again, 
It's called The Incomplete Book of Running. And if you remember back in the 70s, now wait a second, most of you listeners out there probably weren't even born in the 70s. What was I thinking? Do you remember the 70s? Hmm, maybe aging myself a little bit here. Well, Jim Fix was the man. He was the running guy back then. And we all, well, uh, if you don't know, if you research him, he uh, he collapsed during a run, just one of his regular runs, and died. Uh, that created some controversy back then. But he did have the book called The Complete Book of Running, and it was it was the book for runners back then. So pick up Peter's book. It's The Incomplete Book of Running. Buy it, okay? I have a link to it in the show notes, too, at feelgoodrunning.com. So you're going to really enjoy Peter. And uh, uh, I hope to be back in two weeks. It depends. If not, then I'll have another uh, repeat interview that uh, was conducted. And also, um, I'll talk a little bit of where we're at in the beginning of this episode, okay? All right. Well, thanks a lot and appreciate your support. Uh, this is episode number 34. We're really getting deep into feel good running now. I appreciate you and uh, I appreciate it if you give a good review on Apple Podcast or at least a uh, rating on Apple Podcast and share this with your friends on social media, uh, whatever platform, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, I guess. I don't know what else is out there. I have no idea. I'm terrible at social media, but uh, I try. So get ready. Retooling of the Feel Good Running Podcast. I think you're going to like it. All right. Now enjoy my interview with Peter Sagal, which I believe was done in January of last year, 2019. Wow. That was like the Second month of my podcast, little wet behind the ears then. Well, enjoy. Well, Peter, thank you for coming on to my podcast. I am so humbled and honored to have you on. Um, and I so much look forward to our conversation. You know, I read your book and just about everything in your book resonated with me in one way or another. Um, there's a lot of parallels and comparisons. Um, what I found about your book is that it's so refreshing. Most books are about training, training plans, how to run, you know, races, Zen running, runners that have accomplished great uh, superhuman things that us normal humans usually could not do. Um, and I'm not knocking them. They serve their purpose, but you humanized running, and it's just a real, uh, real book. Very intelligently written, humorous, painful. Though you cut through pain with some humor um, at times, it's humbling, selfless, and brings out you know some true human issues, emotions, and uh, the true human spirit. Well, geez, I'll, I'll print that and then print it on the back of the paperback. Thank you. That's very there. You tough. go. All right. <laughs> But I'd like to start off with the name of a person that does not appear in your book at all. But after doing some research, I can only assume this person was partially responsible, aside from your father, for your transition into running. And his name is Bruce Bennett. Can you tell me a little bit about Bruce and the story? You have, in fact, done some research. That's amazing. I, 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 if I remember correctly, the only time I've talked about Bruce Bennett, who, by the way, I haven't seen in yeah, forty years um, is in an introduction I did to my friend, uh, my friend's book about um, uh, my friend Jeff Mallet's book about um, triathlon. Did you track that down? Yes, I did track that uh, down. You sneaky devil, you! <laughs> yeah, and it's relevant because uh, it's funny. I probably should have told this story in the book just to to bring home the point. I was not an athletic child, to put it mildly, and the universe let me know that in many ways from, you know, not getting picked for kickball in the early years to being, you know, banished to right field in the little league years. But perhaps, and now that I think of it, this might've been one of the last times I attempted competitive sports, uh, certainly till I, I, I picked up running. It was the eighth grade 
And our gym teacher, true to the kind of character that uh, you saw in the 80s movies, it was the 80s, uh, actually it was probably the late 70s, uh, loved wrestling. So his, the high, highlight of his year was the wrestling unit where all the boys had to wrestle. None of the girls were expected or allowed to wrestle. This was a different era. And um, the first year I avoided wrestling, it was, to- it was technically optional and I played volleyball with the girls, but uh, that was not, it simply wasn't done. If you were a boy, you had to go do the wrestling thing. So I did the wrestling thing. I had no idea how to wrestle. Uh, I had one practice match and then the, the, the unit, the, the wrestling period, if you will, of the gym class ended with this big tournament. Again, the highlight of this gym teacher's year. And uh, it turns out that in all the eighth grade at Columbia Junior High School in Berkeley Heights, New Jersey, there were two people in the 135 to 140 pound weight class. I remember the number. It was so traumatic. That was me and Bruce Bennett. And I was a pudgy little kid. And Bruce Bennett was not. His 136 or whatever pounds was all muscle. So I had to wrestle Bruce Bennett in front of the entire school, including the girls. And uh, I was pinned in eight seconds. My first it was the second match I had ever wrestled, and the uh, and the and my final one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, that was perhaps the most. Now that you bring it up, the most humiliating experience of my youth. Thank you for reminding me. I, I uh, uh, you're welcome. You're very welcome. And by the way, um, that uh, book that you did the forward in. Um, I did track it down, and you did do the 2009 Chicago Triathlon, and you did a 250-35. Uh, I did. I did do it. It was a lot of fun. I did two more Olympic triathlons after that, and then I got run over by a car while riding my bike, and uh, that kind of ended my triathlon career for now. I might get back to it someday. That transitions into the next part because of your humility with uh, the wrestling match with Bruce Bennett. Um your dad was a runner. And, he was. And, uh, you know, he kind of parallels with my brother because my brother was a runner back in that time. And I was extremely familiar with Jim Fix. Most runners nowadays, unless they've been back in the day, they won't really even know who Jim Fix is. Or they may have seen some book on a dusty shelf somewhere. Uh, I, I've been a little sad about this because I had assumed that Jim Fix was pretty much cemented in public memory. But he's not. Uh, the, I mean, I would say roughly that of the audiences I've spoken to and the people I've interacted with on my book tour, maybe as little as 10% remember Jim Fix. And of course, those people are all over 40, if not significantly over 40. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's the same. I mean, I, I honestly believe because he was so central to my understanding of like, I don't know what you want to call it, the running movement, the sport in America. I just assumed that everybody would know who he was, right? I mean, you know, everybody remembers who Hank Aaron is, but, you know, even though they may not have been old enough to see him play. But no, apparently that's not the case. The Jim Fix's moment, uh, you know, was so tied up in that particular moment. And of course, unlike all the other people who people remember, he's not on film. He wrote a book. Right. A couple of them, actually. He's been, he's been sadly, I won't say forgotten, but his memory has faded. For us long-term runners, his, uh, his memory is still there. And I consider him the Jack Lane of running. Yeah, that's, that's a good way of putting it. He certainly did more to popularize it. I mean, the way I thought of it, and this only occurred to me while I was talking about him, is until Jim Fix came along, uh, the only people who ran were people who were trying to win, win races, i.e. sprinters, marathoners, middle distance runners. And people who were training for other sports, you know, the classic boxing, doing road work montage. Right. Uh, the whole notion of running in and of itself, when you weren't expecting to either win a running race or use that fitness for any other sport was, I won't say entirely new, but it was pretty new. And he's the guy who popularized it, you know. Right. Exactly. Or Jim Fix wrote this book and everybody started following his advice. The whole notion of like going out and running three miles just for the hell of it seemed, I guess, nuts. I mean, like it's it's as it's as as crazy as somebody would suggest you should hop three miles. Yeah, and you know what? I bet you there's people out there that are going to accidentally pick up his book because your cover kind of parallels the exact look of his book. And if yeah. they're not paying attention, they may get home and go. Who the heck is this Jim Fix guy? There, it's interesting. A, a good friend of mine, uh, Kyle Cassidy, who actually took the photograph on the cover, uh, and this is not a coincidence that he took the photograph, which is, of course, an homage to Jim Fix, 
he's a, he's a, he's a big Jim Fix fan. He, he, he actually told me about a book that I didn't know about. I knew that Jim Fix wrote a second book of running because the first one was such a phenomenon. It was a little embarrassing, of course, because it was called The Complete Book of Running and he had to write a sequel. But he also wrote a book called Jackpot, which was about the fact that he went pretty much overnight from being a pretty obscure author, editor in suburban Connecticut to being in a national celebrity. Uh, and I have, I have it. I haven't read it yet. But he went back, uh, my friend Kyle, and just recently reread uh, the, book of, the complete book of running. I read it a few years ago when I first wrote about it for Runner's World. And, and what, what's interesting is that, you know, obviously there's a lot of things that aren't in the book, right? Things that have developed about the sport, both, you know, in terms of technique, like he doesn't write about interval training. He doesn't write about VO max. He doesn't write about, you know, all kinds of things that we kind of talk about today. But what's interesting to me is there's very little in the book that he says that, that that's not, I'm sorry, there's very little that he does say that hasn't held up advice in terms of his, his suggestions for how to go about the sport. I mean, there are funny things like, oh, to, 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 to see how far you're running, uh, drive a route in your car and use your odometer to figure out how far your route is. We don't need to do that anymore. We don't need to do that anymore. And I used to do that when I first started running. Uh, I used to, I remember I, I used to use my uh, bicycle. Um, I don't know what you call it. The, 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 the bicycle computer that tells you how far you've run. I used to do that to, to, uh, to, measure out my routes before the ubiquity of GPS watches. Probably more accurate. Now in chapter 14 of that book, um, in your book, you mentioned that 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 was your favorite chapter of Jim Fix's book. It was eat to run. Good news if you really like food. And I really did like food. Uh, Still do, in fact. Well, I want to read a little book excerpt from, um, because this is kind of getting to my next question. Um, This comes in correlation with your dad. And you wrote, funny, dad, you ran six miles. I stayed here eating frozen waffles and looky here, we both ended up in the same place. And he didn't react to these provocations. He just snorted a bit and shook his head and went to a shower. But you were secretly at that time grabbing his Jim Fix book and reading it kind of like it was uh, porn. I liked how you mentioned <laughs> that. I make that comparison because the illustrations in the, in the Complete Book of Running are weirdly like the illustrations in The Joy of Sex, which was another big book from that period. Exactly. In the same way that, like, you know, certainly for an adolescent boy, porn represents something much to be desired but impossible to access. Uh, for a pudgy little unathletic kid like me, reading about these, this running and looking at these pictures of, of slender, happy people who were physically fit and were able to eat whatever they liked and not feel terrible and, and, and could walk around in shorts and sleeveless t-shirts without feeling self-conscious. That to me was, was, was as, as, as distant as porn might've been as, as, as weird and fantastic. Like I could never imagine myself right in that situation. And in a weird way, being able to write my own book and put myself in the cover as a way of like making that particular unreachable fantasy come true. You know, and I think that, uh, you know, your, your issue or not issue, but your experience uh, with Bruce Bennett and reading that book, um, you asked your father one day if you could go to go on a run with him. And he said, sure, I'll wake you up at six o'clock. And you didn't get any guilt trips or teasing from him, which you probably thought you would. He probably thought you were out of your mind. And in your opening, uh, the very opening, you dedicate your book, you say to my father who woke me up and said, time to go. Can you tell me about that first run and how that, what that meant to you? Oh, well, I describe it in brief. I mean, I remember it pretty vividly, certainly more so than, um, than, uh, I remember, I mean, certainly more so than anything else, because we know that from psychology, uh, Christine Blasey Forbes was the last person to tell us is the trauma imprints on the brain. And it was pretty traumatic. Um, basically, I remember very vividly wearing Keds. That was the sneaker of choice back in the 70s. Right. Uh, this must have been 1980 or thereabouts. Um, and I remember the route we took out from, you know, through out our, you know, suburban street into another pretty anonymous suburban street. I remember the feeling of trying to get up the hill. It was a very gentle slope. And I remember just, just, just 
not being able to get more than half a mile. I was just dying. You know, I was so out of shape. I was, my, my breathing was laboring. My little feet killed me. Everything ached. You know, I mean, who knows how long it had been before that day that I had actually run any distance, you know? Right. Uh, so it was pretty tough, but I got up the next day when he woke me and did it again. And as I say in the book, even if you're non-athletic, if you're 15, that's a pretty decent advantage physically. And so I was able to improve quite rapidly. Yeah, I, I, I hear you on that. And you're right. Back then, even now, you can improve quite rapidly. Um, the one thing that, that um, struck me, too, is that day, it seems to me that you became a runner that day. That was a day that clicked. And, and from that point on, running became semi part of your life, not, not as much as it was after you turned 40, but beforehand. But what I, what I found very striking in that period is that you would, you were overweight and running really started taking off the weight. And then you got involved with running in school and your weight came off, but then you went the other direction and you became extremely skinny and you put a small little, um, there was a little sentence in there that said, though it wasn't diagnosed, it was possible anorexia in your words. So that seemed like it was a, a constant uh, struggle with you mentally, especially for youth. And how, how did you deal with the battle of, of that in your back of your mind? And you know, what's interesting is, is I have been really surprised uh, how much other men who I've talked to about the book have wanted to talk to me about that. Uh, more so than women. Uh, I think women maybe find, uh, you know, a, a morbid obsession with body image and weight loss to be so normal that it doesn't strike them as being more interesting than anything else in the book. But men are really interested in that. And that maybe supports my theory that men suffer these issues, body dysmorphia, struggles with weight, uh, eating disorders, all those things maybe not as much as women do, but certainly more than we like to admit. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just, I mean, I talked to a psychologist once about this and she she said to me, you know, men will have body conversations in very limited circumstances in gyms. You know, if they're on a sports team together, they'll talk about it. Women have the conversation whenever they have a conversation, that being her joke. Um, and, and for everything else that women have to deal with, which is much more significant and damaging in this regard, they at least have the single advantage that they can talk about it. Right. No woman has ever been ashamed, shouldn't be ashamed. Uh, no, let me put it this way. No woman has ever been ashamed to talk up about wanting to lose weight, feeling good or bad about how they, how they feel about their body. And they can be pretty confident that their female friends will respond sympathetically out of it out of a sense of common struggle, right? Right. Uh, in fact, I've been privy to some of these conversations and I'm amazed that women can be so intimate to each other. Oh, you know, I can't stand my hips. Oh, darling, you look, fine. you know, whatever. Men can't have that conversation. It's just not the thing you do. Maybe gay men do it, but certainly in heterosexual circles, it just doesn't come up right. one more time against us. And it's, it's tough because if, anecdote is data. I can tell you that there are more men dealing with this or who had dealt with this than they, than are willing to admit. It's a competitive world and a a man that is in better shape and not overweight or extremely skinny in order to get the woman needs to be in shape. And society puts that on us, I believe. Yeah. And that's more true now than it used to be. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it's it's been a long time since this was the case, but a man could be overweight, and that could signal prosperity and success, right? Absolutely. Uh, these days, uh, if you're going to be a successful, powerful man, an alpha man, you know, top of the hierarchy, you have to look like a fitness model. In addition to being a millionaire, I mean, I mean, look at look at you know, you can go back thirty years and look who are the corporate titans. You know, the, the heads of 
GE or whatever big companies were around and what they look like. Right. And they'll look like, look at the pictures of the people who were heads of, uh, of Facebook or uh, the other Silicon Valley companies. Or, or, or here's the, the richest man in the world, the most successful man in the world is Jeff Bezos. And if you've looked at a picture of Jeff Bezos recently, you know that he has spent a significant amount of his very valuable time in a gym. Right. Because he knows that, you know, he can be literally the richest man in the world. But if he walks around with a pot belly, people are going to take him less seriously. Exactly. No, it, it is more noticeable now. And, you know, the world is a lot um, compressed now where you can go online and see anything at any time. Back then, you just didn't. You didn't have access to all the stuff that we have today. Um, so I get that. Now, you were 40 when you seriously started running. Yes. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I want to give my, my teenage self a do. I was a pretty serious runner through high school. I ran a lot of races. I was on my, I even lettered at cross country, although I don't think I deserved it. But certainly my, the, the, the running boom that started, my personal running boom that started when I turned 40 was longer lasting and generally more healthy and successful than the first. Right. And you, I think in the, the beginning of your book, uh, the very preface of your book, you mentioned that probably before you turned 40, you had about maybe calculated 5,000 miles or something yeah, like that. Slightly cheek, but certainly, you know, given, given my, my, my not particularly regular habits of exercise throughout my thirties, that's certainly probably not a, not an underestimate. Right. Now, when you, um, you made a comment in your book, when you, you turned 40, you were, uh, to forestall mortality, which seemed closer than it ever had been. Well, somebody my age reading that, that's like, I wish I could be 40 again. Yeah, well, somebody <laughs> my age talking about it feels the same thing. I mean, this, you know, that was, of course, 13, almost 14 years ago. I'm turning uh, 54 in just a few weeks. And looking back at myself at age 40, thinking I was too old is uh, getting old is, is hilarious. But nonetheless, uh, that's how I felt at the time. Now you have another year before you get the Denny's discount. So enjoy it while you can. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, so you went from a person that ran to being a runner from your words and you ran your first marathon, which I love this marathon. I ran it three times, the Chicago marathon in October 20, uh, 2005 and in a time of 403, um, what were the trigger points where you jumped the line to go to the other side from just a casual runner and wanting to do a marathon? You know, I don't, I mean, uh, to me, it wasn't so much a trigger point as wanting to do the first marathon. It was like wanting to do the second because I, my initial, you know, my initial impetus to run the 2005 Chicago marathon was very typical. And I think very common, the kind of bucket list thing. Oh, you know, oh my God, I'm turning 40. That means I'm going to die someday. What sort of things do I want to do before I die? I want to run a marathon before I die. And a lot of people have done that. And many of those people say, okay, I did that. I did that. Now I'll do something else. But for me, what happened that was really unexpected was that I decided I wanted to write another, run another and do it better. Right. Not something I anticipated happening all until pretty much the moment I finished the marathon mm -hmm. it found me, whatever it was a half hour earlier when I was struggling through mile 20. Uh, I probably would have told you that I will never do this again. We all say that. Yeah, I know. The comparison to giving birth has uh, has been made many times. Um, and and that's a more interesting question for me. Why in the world did I both decide that I wanted to do it better? And why was I able to do it better? Did I discover some uh, hidden talent that I didn't know that I had? Well, certainly my first marathon didn't demonstrate it. I wasn't one of those prodigies that you know, tore off my first marathon at 315. Um, I, I think it was, in retrospect, a, a basic understanding that, unlike a lot of things in this life, especially athletic things, this is something that I could excel at, that this is something that my gifts, such as they are, which are primarily stubbornness, could actually pay off. This is something I could do. And uh, it became something that I could do, you know, uh, to be immodest. I think that I've, I've done stuff as a runner that most people haven't been able to do. I've qualified for Boston three times. I've, you know, run 14 marathons. I've run a, you know, 309 marathon. These are not, 
you know, these are not easy things to do and I was able to do them. So somehow I knew that that was in the realm of possibility, even when I was sort of miserable during that first one. Yeah, that first, I feel the same way. I think my first marathon was a 357 in Los Angeles. Um, And I did eventually cut down my time, not to the degree that you did. You cut 43 minutes off your time um, in that year because you went back and did a 320.39 and qualified you for the Mecca of marathons, Boston. Yeah, I didn't know that I was able to do that, but I did it. Well, you did it. And uh, so now I'm going to segue because we're in the marathon thing. Yep. In chapter six, you start off with three words, which all of us have um, thought this many times, probably a lot of times. Running sometimes suck. It sure does, doesn't it? (laughs) You know, we endure pain. As a runner, I, you know, I I think even in our training runs, we endure pain. My opinion, it's like death. Nobody escapes it. If you're a runner, no matter what level of a runner you are, you're going to have some sort of pain. However, a weird thing happens when you become a longer term runner or a longer distance runner. Your pain threshold increases and somehow we learn to overcome pain and and which is kind of sadistic in a way. I, I yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, I, I think that I have a, I have a, and I write about this in the book. I, I even once wrote about it for Runner's World. That sometimes I think that that enduring the discomfort or pain or whatever we're dealing with, and maybe it should be discomfort because pain is a different thing. If your if your leg feels like it's about to fall off, you should probably stop running. Right. Um, but the discomfort of it, you know, the exhaustion, the aches, the pains, the thirst, the things we've all gone through, gone through. I honestly think that that's part of the appeal of the sport. I mean, they're called endurance sports, running, swimming, biking. And, and, and right there in the name is endurance. And, and there's something that we runners like about that. We, we like the fact that it hurts and we do it anyway. We like the fact that to finish a marathon, you've got to put up with a lot of difficulty, either you know on the day or on all the training miles you do. We like that. I think that has to do with a way of proving yourself. You know, that whole, you know, Lawrence of Arabia moment, you know, it's like, doesn't that hurt? Yes, the trick is not to mine. Exactly. Um, But I also think it's a little bit to do with the kind of lives we live in which, you know, for a lot of us, and this may, again, be a male thing, although obviously I know some women runners were total badasses, um, that it feels too soft sometimes. You know, I mean, I'm going to get up, uh, in my office where I'm sitting, I'm in this new skyscraper where we just moved. I'm going to get in an elevator. The elevator is going to take me to, you know, I'll, I'll walk t- 20 feet to the train. I'll get in the train then get the bus to my house. And once I arrive at my house, I don't need to do anything. If I want to, I can have someone deliver me food. I mean, life is easy. Right. Say that with the knowledge that it is not true for a lot of people in this world, but for, you know, middle-class Americans, it's pretty easy. Um, and I think that in the world in which we live, we sometimes need to test ourselves to see if we can endure discomfort or pain, even in the most con- controlled environment, even if an environment in which we know, say, running a marathon, at any time we can stop, walk over to the medical tent and get a ride back. I, maybe th- because of that safety, we, we, are a- we are able to go out there and see what we can take and test ourselves. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Um, there is a safety net out on a marathon course, but I think your, your, the mentality, your mental fitness in a marathon pushes you through from aid station to aid station. And the only thing that you have in your mind is getting across that finish line and having a medal put around your neck. Or sometimes the only thing that gets you going, I'm sure you've done this is get to the next aid station. Exactly. Chicago marathon. And I think it was 2007. It was the year it was so hot. Somebody died. And I remember the latter half of that marathon. I was just like, just get to the next aid station. If I just get to the next aid station, I can have three more cups of Gatorade. I'll, I'll take a rest and then I'll keep going. That happened in 2004 at Boston. For me, it was uh, for some reason, uh, a record breaking heat day out there. And it was a death March, most of the race, but uh, got through it. Not happy with the time, but who cares? Nobody ever asked me about it, so I don't care. Um, now, you had six marathons or so under your belt, and you were preparing to train for the 2010 Chicago Marathon. And this comes back to the pain threshold thing. 
And uh, you went out for a ride on your bike and you and a car met at the same time and collided. And fortunately, nothing was broken. You were badly bruised inside with horrific pain that was not going to go, go away for some time. So uh, can you tell me about that period of time while you were recovering and if you feel that running those previous marathons and and learning to go through the pain threshold, how that helped you recover from this accident? Well, as I think back upon that incident, I mean, that was a very distressing time. I mean, obviously I was injured, which is never fun. Uh, fortunately, uh, I was not injured in such a way that I needed surgery or was permanently disabled. In fact, I ran the Chicago Marathon in October after being in, in basically two months after enduring the, in, the injury. Um, so for me, it was about dealing with expectations. I mean, that was a time when I, I was, I was training up. I was going to, I was going to try to break my PR in the, that year's Chicago triathlon. Obviously that wasn't going to happen. Um, and it was about dealing with the fact that for the first time in years, since my, you know, five years, I couldn't run regularly. That was really hard, but that ended up being a lesson in sort of changing my mindset. In fact, it has a little bit to do with what we were talking about a moment ago about, you know, the, the, the privilege and pride and enduring pain. I thought that was the point. Well, now I was enduring very, very serious pain and didn't want to endure it. I wanted to avoid it. And so when I set out to run the 2010 marathon, having just been injured, I, I completely lowered my expectations to zero. I didn't expect to finish the race. I'd assume I'd start running and then along with a friend of mine who needed a pacer and within three or four miles, perhaps, I would drop out because my back would hurt. And I didn't. I just kept running. And, uh, and with, a, with a real ease and almost zen-like detachment from like hitting a particular goal, I didn't drive myself. I just ran. And I did really well. It was, my think, uh, my third Boston qualifier that year. 327.15 is what you came in at. Yep. And, uh, and, you know, and that with you know, two months after getting my back broken. So, and that wasn't, I mean, in a weird way, it wasn't like courage or bravery or pushing through. It was just understanding that whatever happened was going to happen and running as best I could. And that, that turned out to be an important lesson. There's a parallel um, in my life to that in 2002, I trained all summer long. I lived in Virginia at the time and I trained under this, um, he was a master's runner. Uh, guy was a crazy man, but he was a phenomenal master's runner, had an Adonis body and he put us through hell for probably about four months of that summer. And, um, I ran Chicago did my PR, my PR was a 328 something, qualified for Boston. And then uh, right before Boston, something happened. There was a big snowstorm in uh, Virginia and I was shoveling snow and I felt a twitch in my back. Oh no. I ended up um, not thinking about it. And then I went to Charleston, South Carolina and ran the Cooper River Bridge 10K, but I was having some sciatic going down my leg. And yep. then that year in Boston, I was basically limping. I made it through uh, mile 18 and I dropped out and it was the most horrific period of time of my life. I was devastated. And then I went to the doctor, had an MRI and had to have back surgery because the oh, gel man. broke through the shell and the shell fragments embedded into my sciatic nerve. Well, I'm really sorry to hear that. that well, I, it, 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 was, it came out great because I had the surgery in May and that year I ran the Chicago Marathon in October and did a 348. So, um, hey. you know, it's kind of parallel, went through that. And I, I think uh, mentally just because I was able to run again, but I, I can see, I can see how you felt during that race because that's exactly how I felt when I ran it that year. Yeah, that's a valuable lesson. Um, you know, your book weaves in and out of the Boston Marathon quite a bit. Mm -hmm. specifically the horrific events of the 2013 race. Um, you know, there's a lot of heroic stories that day in the midst of the tragedy. And you very eloquently, you know, talk about your experience and you selfishly gave yourself of that run on behalf of that uh, with team, with a vision, team with, a vision, with yeah. William Gear, uh, Greer, William. I'm sorry, William Greer. 
Um, and the reason that I, I don't want to go through the whole story about it, because I think the listeners need to get your book and read all about it because you weave in and out of it. But I want to really talk about the last mile. Um, sure. William was spent. You were you were kind of spent, but William was more spent. You thought he was going to have to walk that last mile, and he didn't. Can you take it from there and tell me yeah. what all happened? Essentially, William was having a, a first Boston. It was his first Boston uh, in 2011. Uh, very much like my first Boston in 2007. It sucked, and uh, he just wasn't having a good time. He was suffering from cramps, uh, muscular cramps and stomach cramps. And, um, it was just not having a good day. And he was really, the wheels were coming off as, as runners like to say. And, you know, he really wanted to have a good time. Uh, he was hoping for a 345 that day. That pretty much wasn't going to happen. And I was trying to figure out a way to encourage him to keep going. You know, I really, for some reason, I became really invested in his success. Uh, I guess for a lot of psychological reasons that I can exp- I explain in the book. And, you know, we, uh, we were doing the thing that we were talking about a little while ago. It was like just trying to get point to point. It was like, William, I was saying to him, you know, there's a building up ahead. Do you think, can you, can you see it? And he's like, I can't see that. And I was trying to get him just to run, you know, run, run, run until the next mile marker, you know, whatever. And it was tough. And, and, and he would never admit it, but I think he was getting a little annoyed uh, at me for trying to push him when he just wanted to walk. But I said to him, we were around mile 24 or whatever. And I and we were walking and I said, you know, I know you feel bad, but look, you, you have to run the last mile, the Boston marathon. It's like most legendary, you know, turns in sport right on Hereford left on Boylston. Then as you know, since you've run it, uh, the Boston marathon has crowds or sparse or not as you run through the various suburbs, but you get to Boylston street and all of a sudden you're in the Canyon of heroes, right? It's mm-hmm. like, buildings on both sides and the, and the people 20 deep on each side and they're all cheering. And, you know, you know, you don't, you don't want to come up on that and as a, at a walk, right. You want to run into that shoot of, of people. And, and so when we were approaching it, he was, we were running and he's like, where's the, where's the, um, where's the mile marker. And I said, you know, it's about 200 yards ahead, wherever it was. He said, when we get there, I think I'm going to have to start walking again. I was like, all right, man, it's okay. It's your race. You know, I wasn't going to be his drill sergeant. And we got to the mile 25 marker and he sped up rather than, uh, slow down. And he, you know, did that right for turn on Hereford. He did that left turn on Boylston and, you know, at a run, it was, it was the strongest he had looked in an hour, you know, since probably the first half of the race. And it was amazing. I I was incredibly proud of him. He was going for it, right? You know, he wasn't going to walk the last mile of the Boston Marathon. And it was great. And he he ran all the way down Boylston Street and crossed the line. He actually, I had to tell him to stop. Like, you just crossed the line. It's all right. And then, you know, in the way that you do, he just fell apart uh, because he'd given it all. It was just adrenaline and guts. And all the pain came back right at him. And he was doubled over and he was trying to catch his breath. And that's why we were still standing relatively near the finish line on the opposite side when the bombs went off. About a football field away. Yeah, Uh, which was good because if we were any closer, uh, we might have been injured or even traumatized by it. As it were, we were just far enough away so that we were perfectly safe. And of course, the thing that I think about a lot and have since that day is what would have happened had he not decided to run that mile or having started to run it, he decided, I can't do it after all who knows where we would have been. We certainly probably, I guess we probably would have been closer to the bombing. Who knows what might've happened or what we might've seen. Yeah. You had a five minute period in there that, you know, anything could have happened in that period of five minutes, uh, wherever your location would have been at that time. Yep. My uh, friend was out here um, from Colorado and I was complaining to him earlier that day. I get, I get very frustrated because running is such a, a physical sport. And I was telling him, I'm so tired of turning on ESPN and seeing people play poker um, yeah. or pool. Or now I see that they're doing the, uh, the uh, cornhole competition, which in my opinion, it, have you seen darts on TV yet? Yeah, darts too. Any of that. 
And, you know, you look at these accomplishments like uh, Des Linden this past year in the Boston Marathon and the story with Shalane Flanagan and stopping at the port john and the year, you know, before when Shalane won the New York City Marathon and all of those. And, you know, we just don't get the coverage. And then all of a sudden this happens and my friend texts, did you turn on the TV? I go, no, not yet. And I turned it on and I was just horrified because I had friends that were running that race also. One that was very close to the bombing. Um, but uh, that was just a, that was a horrible day for the running community and we didn't deserve it. No, nobody deserved it. Right. Now you came back the next year and again with, uh, you weren't trained up, but you came back and, and ran with Eric Manser, right? Was that, is that how I pronounce his name correctly? Yeah. Um, with the uh, team with the vision. And uh, later on in the race, you weren't feeling that well. You, um, you know, I'll get to that in a little bit later, but you were doing some medication at that time to deal with depression and some traumatic issues of your painful divorce. Um, and you left the medication back in Chicago and it was causing you some side effects from that. And you told Eric yeah. you couldn't go on and somebody was there to take you in. And I was dizzy. I was just not feeling well in any way. And you peeled off and uh, you went over to an aid station, started drinking some Gatorade. Then you started thinking about Jacob Seelheimer. Can you yeah. tell me what happened then and and how you got your Rocky moment back? Um, basically, you know, Jacob Seelheimer is somebody who I came across um, in 2007 when I was training up to run my first Boston, which I qualified for. Jacob Seelheimer was this guy living at the time in New Hampshire who uh, put on a put up a website called What Would Jacob Do? And he announced that he was going to run the Boston Marathon and wanted to put on his training journal, which is great. Except Jacob Seelheimer weighed about 400 pounds and had never run any distance to that point. Uh, far as far as I know, he could hardly run down the block when he began this process. He certainly wasn't a qualified entrant. He wasn't even a charity entrant. He just decided he was going to bandit the race. And I, at the time in 2007, when I first heard about this, I was genuinely annoyed because, you know, I was a, I was very proud of the fact that I had trained up and qualified for it. And I wanted people to take my achievements seriously. And I somehow felt that this obese guy who just decided I'm going to run the Boston marathon was somehow diminishing it. And eventually, you know, I kept thinking about him and I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to write a column and I'm going to talk about how terrible this is and how, you know, disrespectful this is to those of us who actually train. But, you know, if you're going to do that, you got to talk to the guy. And so I found him and I talked to him and I ended up writing about him for Runner's World. And what I found out was that the reason he decided to do that was because his friends were concerned about his health, frankly, that he might die. They needed to get him to try to lose some of that weight. They needed to get him to be more active. And they basically said, hey, you should run the Boston Marathon. We'll do it with you. And he's a good enough guy and he didn't want to disappoint his friends that he said he would. And then his friends were like, all right, well, you know, Jacob's going to run it, man. And again, he has a sense of honor, so he didn't want to back down. So he lost between the time he decided to do it and the time he crossed the line. He lost about a hundred pounds. He started just riding an exercise bike every day for hours, trying to get in shape, trying to lose some of that weight, trying to get his heart rate down, uh, trying to improve his cardiovascular capacity. And then he finally started running. And that was the 2007, the year we were talking about earlier. That was this year when they had this miserable freezing rain and a strong Northeast wind right in your teeth. I ran that race and walked right from the finish line into um into the medical tent because i was hypothermic mm -hmm. and that same day jacob and his friends starting an hour or whenever after the race had finished ran the whole route no support no medical tents for them nobody handing out gatorade they were packing up the tables already and he was out there for seven hours it took him seven hours to run that course from hopkinton to boston and he sprinted the last hundred yards. And, uh, you know, I realized 
that his race and his courage were far, far greater than mine. And that instead of, you know, dissing him for not doing it right, I needed to respect him and in some ways try to emulate him because he was, you know, we're all runners and we're all climbing our own mountains trying to do what we want to do. And uh, his mountain was far steeper and more intimidating and scary than mine ever was. So, uh, you know, uh, thinking about Jacob, I realized if, if he could do that, then I could keep running uh, a race that I had run before. And, uh, and I ended up doing it. And uh, you finished, and I think he was extremely, extremely happy that you were with him at the finish line. Eric Manser, that's right. Yeah, I should say, no, I've never met Jacob face-to-face. We yeah, talked Eric about, was, was happy. Yeah, yeah. I was, he, was, he was very happy that I showed up. I, I had disappointed him, I think, by not making it. And I was able to come up and, uh, and, and, uh, and cross the line with him. Well, I know you, I know you uh, are running short on time, and I just wanted to, to ask a, a couple final questions to you, if you have just a couple more minutes. Sure. Um, I know in your book, you, you go through a lot of stuff with your divorce, and I'm not even going to go into that. People should go in and read all of that because it's a painful period, and it's really a part of your book, and it's a very big part of your book. Um, I know that uh, one of the touching moments in, in, in this whole thing, I'm actually going through a divorce myself from last year, and I'm in the, uh, what would you call it, the uh, emotional, mental state and the personal collateral damage phase of it right now. But your book has helped me out in that. I'm really glad to hear that. Um, in your um, final um, acknowledgments, you, you write... And finally, Mara, my wife, my happy ending, my destination, my home. Turns out I was running towards you the whole time. I felt that very touching and it gave, it gave me personally a lot of hope. And I'm very happy that you're, you're happy now in that area. Oh, my. Now, my wife has accused me of marrying her only to get an ending for my book, <laughs> uh, which is not true. But, uh, you know, I'm glad to be able to tell people that at least in my case, uh, enduring what I had to endure, and I've had to endure stuff that I, I'm not really at liberty to talk about, um, ended up being worth it. And, and you know, the, the, if there's a lesson in the book, it's, it's that you know, this practice of running that so many of us do, you know, sometimes we think, you know, what's, what's the point of it other than, you know, health benefits, but as I write in the end of the book, I think that what you learn is the practice of persistence. You know, we talked about those miserable runs, like the one I had in Boston in 2007 or Chicago in 2007, where you just think you're going to die. And all you, but, you, but you're like, no, I'm not going to die. I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to get to the next aid station. Exactly. And I'm going to get to the next point and this will be over. I just need to keep going. And that ended up, I mean, as I say, I, in, in the course of my divorce, which obviously involved my children, I ended up dealing with things that I absolutely know, no way to deal with. I just was completely overmatched. I wasn't ready for it. But as it turns out, the one thing I was practiced at was endurance mm-hmm. in sport. And I was able to endure it. And uh, by virtue of my enduring it, uh, I made it to a much better place with a much better person. And I, I got to agree with you on that. The running in my life is is the glue. Uh, most of my friends are runners, and it's really gotten me through a lot, um, a lot easier than if I wasn't a runner. So I, I, I get that. Um, so I, I'm happy for you, and, and you're almost six months into your new marriage, and, and I'm hoping that it, you know, it all works out and Seems like you're extremely happy. So one final question for you, Peter, for our listeners out there, you know, this is the beginning of 2019 and, you know, everybody has their New Year's resolutions and some people are probably going out there to start running, bought a pair of running shoes or, you know, something. Um, Some of the current runners may be looking at some major goals for 2019, but what would be your advice or suggestions that you could give to current and new runners to not only get out there and run, but to stick with it? Well, for people who want to start running, uh, you know, I give some advice in the book that, you know, you can basically, I think it's something that's best done with a goal. Uh, that is, you should say to yourself, instead of, I should start running so I can feel better, you should say, no, I want to go run a 5K. 
I want to train up to run a specific race three miles long and, and get a medal. I think that that's the sort of incentive. We're not very good at doing things for abstract reasons. We're good at doing things for, for concrete reasons with a deadline. So go out there, pick a goal and then train for it, prepare for it. Uh, I think people should start gradually. Uh, otherwise you'll be miserable and people tend not to do things that are miserable. So you won't do it anymore. And I also think that people should do it with friends or, or make friends, um, make friends to do it with. I, I think that's incredibly important. Even Our running group is phenomenal for somebody to lock. I never would have achieved what I've achieved as a runner without my group of friends with whom I run. Um, to people out there who, who, you know, are, are, are running and, and they, and they want to get better at it. I, I really think it's just a question. It, it, it's, it's a thing to remember that you're all, that you're running for your own reasons and your own reasons can change. Uh, you should, everybody should have a goal. Uh, what I said for beginners is anybody for the rest of us, but your goals can change. Maybe you're, you know, I, for example, had this big goal of getting a PR, beating my PR at the age of 46. And I did it. And after that, I was like, well, now what do I do? Well, I ended up that what I ended up doing was running as a guide for blind runners. Uh, so you can do that, or you can run as a guide for any other kind of disabled runner, or maybe you just want to, Maybe you do want to want to do one of those relays like Hood to Coast, or maybe you want to go out and do some marathon tourism, go run the, go run the, um, you know, the, the Paris marathon or the Berlin marathon or Big Sur. And all of those goals are valuable. There's, there's, you don't have to win. You don't have to win your age group. You don't have to do anything that's imposed on you by anybody else. You certainly don't have to lose weight. You don't, that, that you can succeed by your own lights. And, and that's up to you, but that experience of success, of success is always available to you, no matter what kind of shape you're in, no matter what your goals are, no matter what your speed is, you can always choose something, work toward it and succeed. It's an individual sport. And when you start comparing yourselves to others, then it doesn't become fun. But when you just enjoy it and you reach your goals, it's amazing. It's amazing what it does for you inside. Nobody cares about what you run or how you run, but you. And you find that out very quickly when you become a runner. Don't try to talk to anybody about it. Man, is it boring. Yeah, it, it, it is kind of a boring sport for a spectator. But for a runner, I don't think it's boring. I think it's the best medication you could ever get. What I mean is it's boring to talk to people who don't run. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't want to. That's, they don't want to talk to us. They, they can't relate. So one final question. What's the next chapter running for you? Uh, I think this year, I've, uh, thanks, uh, as you know, I've, I've gotten some wonderful opportunities to run some marathons I've never run before in some beautiful places. So I'm hoping to get back into twice a year marathoning at least. Um, Peter, thank you so much for coming on to my podcast today. I, I am so I'm thankful for your book. I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for your stories. And I encourage everybody out there to to pick up Peter's book, The Incomplete Book of Running, and and read it. It will inspire you, motivate you. Uh, There'll be chat parts that'll make you potentially cry. Um, But all in all, it's a real true-to-life, heartwarming, heartfelt book by a selfless person. And I really appreciate you. Well, thank you so much, Jim. And we'll be talking soon. Well, there you go, Peter Sagal. I hope you enjoyed it. If it's the first time that you've heard it, uh, I hope you really liked it. Don't forget to pick up his book, The Incomplete Book of Running. There is a link in the show notes for it. And uh, check out his show, too, on NPR, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. It's really good. It's really entertaining. I think you're going to like that, too. All right, you're not going to escape without a quote. You know me and my quotes. Got to have a quote. And this actually is a simple one. I don't, it, it says unknown who wrote it, but I think we probably have all said it. But I'm going to read it to you right now. It goes like this I didn't feel like running today, which is exactly why I went. I don't know about you, but I've been there many, many times where I haven't felt like running. And I somehow got those magical running shoes on my feet and got out there and ran. And you know what? I felt so good when I was done. Very surprising. Actually, those are some of my best runs when I don't feel like running. 
Do you feel like that too? So once again, I didn't feel like running today, which is exactly why I went. All right, just remember that one. Well, that's it for this episode, runners. I want to again thank you for listening. I really, really appreciate it. You know, a lot. I appreciate it a lot. And uh, I'm looking forward to the uh, to presenting you the retooled Feel Good Running Podcast. And I think, I hope you're going to like it. And I hope you'll give me feedback on it when it's ready to go. And um, again, if you can... You can please leave a rating on Apple Podcast, and if you have time, a review. I would be very indebted to you. And uh, that's it. That's all I got for this episode. So as I always say, just show up and always, always feel good about your running. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Please consider sharing this podcast with your running friends and spread the feel-good running vibe around you. Head over to feelgoodrunning.com to access all the links and resources mentioned on the show. Until next time, keep motivated, keep focused, and keep on running. It is sure to make you, well, feel good.